The sermon text this morning comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Holy Father, we thank you that your love is um, new every morning, that is consistent, that it is a foundation which will never be shaken. And we thank you that you've given us a word that we can found ourselves upon no matter what the storms we may be living in are, no matter the stress and anxiety, the difficulties, the boredom that we may be going through in life. Here is a word of life, a word of truth, and in it we encounter the risen Jesus Christ whom we love. So Jesus, open our eyes and our hearts. We may hear the words that you spoke many, many years ago. May they be new and, and refreshing and, and life to us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So I've mentioned a few times that I used to live in Washington, D.C., in a different life. And when I first moved to D.C., I'd probably live there maybe a month or two, was just getting my bearings in a new city. I had an opportunity to go to a very, very schwanky uh, cocktail party. Um, it was, uh, the only reason I was able to go is my brother's best friend from college went to an Ivy League law, f- uh, law school, and he was just well-connected. And so I got invited. And it was put on by, um, I don't remember the name of the organization, but it was this like conservative think tank for like, like attorneys and legal professionals. It was held at the Harvard Club in Washington, D.C. to give you an idea of like what this was like. And it was basically a networking event, um, which I, um, man, if you live in D.C., that's just what you do. And I always struggled with networking events. The point of a networking event is to go and meet people who may be professionally useful to you in the future. And so you're not really looking to build friendships, although that might happen. You're really looking just to meet people and have them remember you and like you. And I just always struggled with that. It felt very uh, phony. And, and maybe it's because I just wasn't impressive and so no one wanted to talk to me. That might be part of it too. But anyways, I was at this party and like the first guy I talked to, you know, where do you go to college? Common question. And I'm used to, you know, there's just so many colleges out there. And so you're used to when you, someone tells you where they went to college, unless they went to a large state school, you're probably like, oh, I think I've vaguely heard of this. He's like, oh, I went to Stanford University. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, I've heard of that one. Okay. And now just everyone there had gone to like Ivy League schools, worked at big law firms in the city, worked for senators, just very impressive people. But it's a networking event. And so even if you're a very impressive person, it's just, it's, it's distasteful for you to like brag on yourself. And so everyone there is perfecting the art of the humble brag. Because um, again, you're networking, so you want people to know that you're impressive. You want these to lead to potential future professional relationships, but you don't want to come across that way. And so you're like, you know, kind of being def- self-deferential, whatever. But you're also trying to let people know, like, yeah, but I'm actually an impressive person. Now, you didn't hear anybody in this room of very impressive people say something like, I'm really not 
a big deal. You, you probably don't need to talk to me. I'm not going to be useful to you. I'm just, I'm just an ordinary dude. Like, no one said that. The point was to kind of, you know, come across as down to earth and humble, but actually you're a big deal. Now, here's the thing. This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. At the end of the day, when all else is said and done, just say you're not, it's not about you. You're not a big deal. In fact, even more than that, you're an unworthy slave, and you've just done your duty. If you remember from last week, Jesus made some incredible promises to disciples. If you have just a little bit of, seed, a little bit of faith, the size of a seed, you'll say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant yourself in, in the sea. Just a little bit of faith, and God's going to do extraordinary things through you. And these are the disciples who found the church, who were the ones who saw the tongues of fire fall from heaven, spoke in languages they did not know, saw people raised to life. They did incredible things. And so it's not a coincidence that Jesus follows it up with, and when all is said and done, when everything has, has come and gone, at the end of all of that, just say, we are unworthy, we are unworthy slaves. And we've just been doing what we were supposed to do. For in the end, everything we have, everything we receive, everything that is accomplished through us is by grace. That's the heart of the gospel. So we'll give you an outline of where we're going this morning. First point is who serves who. Second point is the slaves of God. Third point is slaves by grace. Now give a recap of where we are in Luke. So we're in an extended teaching where Jesus takes his disciples, pulls them apart, or not pulls them apart, pulls them aside, and, and just spends some, some intentional time teaching them before he goes to Jerusalem. So in chapter 17, Jesus is taught on sin, forgiveness, and faith. So these are like basic essentials of what it means to follow Jesus, of what it means to be a Christian. And here Jesus is going to give us the ideal posture of a disciple towards God. Uh, Go ahead and, and follow along with me as I read verses seven to nine again. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards then you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Give an overview again of this this parable. The images of a a small farmer. They have one kind of servant, worker. It's not a large farm. Jesus' point isn't on, you know, wealth or economics. The point is on the dynamics between the servant and the master. Now, the, the Bible that we read, there's a big cultural separation between us and it. It was written anywhere from 2,000 to 3,500 years ago. It was written to a very different time, different people. Now what's amazing though is when we read it, it doesn't read like this ancient relic of the past. It reads like a, a word that's true and brings life and cuts to our hearts and reveals to us what is true about ourselves and about God and that's amazing. I read a ton of history and most ancient texts read like relics of the past. And they may be interesting, and there's wisdom from the ancients, but nothing like the Bible, which can speak anew and afresh to generation after generation. But there are times when we come to the Bible and we sense that distance, that cultural separation. And this is one of those texts. We're gonna do a little bit of a dive into this. But specifically on this word servant, and the ESV, it translates it servant. The word is doulos in Greek, if you're a Greek nerd. That's a pretty wide word in that it can mean a lot of things. Um, it can mean a servant. It can be more of, the NASB translate as a bond servant. 
but it's really referring to a slave. And the reason the ESV doesn't use the word slave is that we as Americans in the 21st century, when we think of slavery, we think of the transatlantic slave trade, 16, 17, 1800s. And slavery in antiquity, there were some very significant differences. And so if the ESV says, you know, a slave, we automatically picture like the Amistad. And that's not what the slavery in antiquity looked like. So the ESV is trying to disassociate from that and uses the word servant. But really, it, it, it's, re- it's referring to someone who is in some level of bondage, a slave. And a slave is closer to the mark. And the whole point of this parable is on the dynamics between a slave and the master. Verse nine is kind of the pivotal question here. Does he, does he, he's talking about the master, when the servant or the slave again comes in and he serves him, does, the, the, does he thank the slave because he did what was commanded? In a master-slave relationship, if a slave obeys his master, does he put the master in his debt? Like does the master owe something to the slave because the slave obeys him? It's a rhetorical question and the expected answer is, well, of course not. A slave does what a master tells him to do. That's what a slave does. It's just his duty. It's nothing special to be commended. Now, before we get into what this has to do with discipleship, there's a kind of a thorny question I want to wade into. And that's the question, is Jesus condoning slavery in this passage? Is he condoning slavery? It's gonna be a pretty spiritually disorienting question when we hear someone make arguments that the Bible is pro-slavery. It can make us question, well, is the Bible good? Is it true? Is it authoritative? It can really disorient us in, 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 in who we think God is and how we understand him. And so this is gonna be a big question. I'm, not, I'm just gonna try to give us some maybe guideposts to run by. I wanna begin just with two observations as we think about how the Bible interacts with slavery. And again, the first is one I've already touched on, but slavery in antiquity was, very, was different in some really important ways than, than the transatlantic slave trade. And the first way that it was different was that the transatlantic slave trade was a race-based slave system. White colonial Europeans went to black Africa and kidnapped and enslaved black people. They were not going to the continent of Europe and enslaving white people. They were not going to Russia and enslaving white people. It was a race-based slave system. And so at the time, you had these horrendous, hermeneutical, like, hermeneutically pathetic exegeses where people were trying to justify why white people could enslave black people, trying to make, again, bad biblical arguments that black people are somehow inferior and therefore it's okay. But slavery in antiquity was not race-based. Most slaves in Jesus' time would have been slaves um, that were enslaved from war. So when one nation would go to war against another, oftentimes the losers would be sold into slavery. Or it could be from financial debts, if someone had a, debts they weren't able to pay. Or it could be criminals, they're serving out time as a slave. But it wasn't race-based. And so what, if you bought your freedom, or if you served out your time of slavery, and you were no longer a slave, you could become a Roman citizen, and in fact, you could run for office. And so there were people who, in ancient Rome, were former slaves that were senators. It didn't happen in Jim Crow South because that was a race-based slavery system, but it wasn't in antiquity. That's one significant, significant difference. And again, racism obviously existed in, in the ancient world. Hence, we get Ephesians talking about the 
hatred between Jews and Greeks. It just wasn't, it didn't play into slavery. The second observation I wanna, I wanna make as we think about Bible and slavery, especially this text, is that Jesus isn't, his point isn't to comment on the institution of slavery. And so when we try to read into this, Jesus' view of slavery, at best, it's gonna be speculative because Jesus isn't giving us a commentary on the institution of slavery. He's talking about how we should relate to God and he's using what was at that time an incredibly common institution to give insight into what this relationship should look like. Any kind of speculation on what Jesus might think of slavery based on this text is gonna be just that. It's gonna be speculation. Nonetheless, the question still stays. Yeah, but Jesus doesn't also, he doesn't condemn slavery in this passage. Shouldn't he condemn it? I mean, at the, at the best, it seems like he treats it neutrally. It's just like an interesting metaphor or a helpful metaphor. And that's a sticky question. And I'm gonna be honest, my goal is not to provide an answer because I'm not sure I have a good answer yet. I'm still working through this myself. And, and, and I kind of want to maybe confuse you a little bit and get you to think, maybe question questions we might instinctively have. Because I think at the end of the day, how the Bible interacts with slavery is, is frankly messy and ambiguous and it's a complex answer and it does not fit the kind of binary, simplistic, kind of political one-liners that we like. It just doesn't. It won't fit in a tweet. And so my goal, again, is I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to provide a really great answer, but maybe just give us some questions to help us see how complex this really is and how nuanced our, our, our understanding of this has to be. But more or less, again, we wish this was more consistent, but more or less, Christians throughout the history of the church have called out instances of brutality, of oppression, of slavery, of kidnapping. Again, there's been exceptions. But oftentimes, Christians have called out you know, brutality and those sorts of things, cruelty. But our visceral reaction to slavery, not slavery as it was carried out in the transatlantic slave trade, which was brutal and violent and racist, but just the fact of having our personal liberty constricted, our kind of instinctual, visceral reaction to that may be more colored than we realize by our own assumptions of the primacy of personal liberty. Let me give you an example. Declaration of Independence, one of our founding documents, begins like this, and I want you to finish it for me, because you probably know it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among them are? Yeah, excellent, you guys know it. One of our founding documents, how we justified rebelling against the uh, British Empire, that is an incredibly enlightenment-infused statement. The Enlightenment was an intellectual movement in the 1700s, and it was a movement away from community to the individual. It was a movement away from inherited traditions and authority to reason as the basis for why we know anything. Reason by an individual, by the way. It was a move towards a super focus on the individual, and we are heirs very much of the Enlightenment. So the fact that we'll talk about privacy, or my private space. That's an, that's an enlightenment-infused idea that did not exist outside of the West and outside of the Enlightenment. 
It's just recognizing how that will color how we view an institution like slavery. Again, if, if one of the basic goods of humanity, an inalienable right is liberty or personal liberty, then yeah, there's gonna be a visceral reaction against any form of slavery, even if it's not a brutal, vicious, racist one that's born out of kidnapping. To make it even more complex, Christians, again, throughout the centuries, there's been many theologians and Christians who faithfully tried to think through what is most important for a Christian, for a human. There were seven virtues that were traditionally held up as these are, these seven virtues every Christian should emulate, the kind of habits of the heart. And they are prudence, justice, temperance, courage, faith, hope, and love. In contrast to the Declaration of Independence, liberty is not listed as a virtue. These were virtues that, again, were, were, were thought up before the advent of the Enlightenment. If you're confused, that's good. <laughs> Pardon my point. Is we, we inherit a way of thinking that may color how we view slavery and the kind of visceral reaction to it. Um, and we want to be critical of just assuming things, assuming what's right and wrong. And so here's, I'm gonna try to wrap it up before we go on to the next point. Again, Jesus would have harshly, unflinchingly condemned the transatlantic slave trade as racist, as brutal, as violent, as oppressive. There's just, there's just no qualifying that. And the Bible provides, I think, theological foundations. When you look at every human is made in God's image, there are theological foundations that move against any form of slavery. This is true. Nonetheless, the Bible is not an anti-slavery text. That's just not God's primary concern. It's not why it was written. It's not that, that God is for slavery. Again, these are simplistic answers, but it may be that God is not quite as concerned with individual liberty as we Westerners, heirs of the Enlightenment, are. That's my messy, confusing answer, the best I can give. But again, it's complex. All right, I knew you guys wanted that much on slavery, and you got it. So that was point one, who serves who? Again, the, the image of the relationship dynamics between the slave and the master. The, master is not, or the slave does not put the master in his debt by obeying the, the master. He's just doing what he's supposed to do. Now we get to point two, slaves of God. Look at verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. Again, the point is that it's not noteworthy when slaves obey their masters. The master owns a slave and the slave does what he says and that's just the way it works. But it's the same way for a disciple. God doesn't owe us when we obey him. We don't put God in our debt when we choose to obey him. We're simply doing what we're supposed to do. We are God's slaves. In fact, it's a command. When Jesus says, so also when you have done all that you're commanded, say, that's in the imperative, which means it's a command. He's saying, you must Say, it's not a suggestion. You must say, we are only unworthy slaves. We've only done what we were supposed to do in the first place. We can't put God in our debt, yet our hearts are sinful, sneaky, and there's all kinds of ways that we try to put God in our debt, or at least think in that kind of a way. And so, you know, one way is we try to make deals with God, and there can be explicit, you know, this can be explicit when we're like, God, if you do this for me, I'll go to church. I won't miss church again. Or if you do this for me, like I'll read my Bible every morning for a month. Um, and certainly they do it in movies. Maybe some of us 
we're not quite that explicit about it, but there are implicit ways we make deals with God. Like, God, if, if, if I raise my kids to know the Lord, I bring them to Sunday school, I do family worship, I, I, I have them read their Bibles, well, then you're gonna make sure that they love you. And if they stray, not only is there the pain of a child straying from the Lord, there's also a sense of betrayal. Like, God, I did my part. Why didn't you do your part? There's an implicit deal we think we're making with God. Or it could be just, you know, if I obey God, God's gonna bless my family or my ministry or my career or whatever. And, and when those things all of a sudden go through hardship, when our marriages are difficult or our ministry is not where we want to be or our career is not advancing how we want it to be, we not only feel discouragement, we maybe feel betrayal, like, God, I obeyed you and you let me down. It's an implicit deal we're making with God as if he's, he owes us if we obey him. Another way this can get lived out, which isn't a deal-making, but it's when we grow angry or discouraged over a lack of recognition when we serve. Encouragement is a gift, and we don't encourage one another enough. That's very true. But there's a fine line between accepting encouragement as the life-giving, you know, encouragement from a fellow brother or sister in Christ. There's a fine line between that and, and, and beginning to serve because we want that kind of recognition. And it's slippery when that happens. But, but I'll say this, in, in most churches, it is often the case that, 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 that like volunteer positions that have a public-facing role, whether it's teaching or leading worship, are often easier to fill than trying to get people to take out the trash or getting people to lock the doors or things that are not gonna be in the limelight. It's because if you do those other things, no one's gonna know and you're not gonna receive recognition. We feel like we deserve it and I'll tell you what, I think this is a strength of Vine Street. I, one, of the reasons, one of the many reasons I love Vine Street is we're intergenerational in a, in a way it's rare. Typically, you look at churches in Louisville, they're either old or they're young, but we have old and young, and that's beautiful. And the reason it's beautiful is generations can speak prophetically to each other. Now, I'm a millennial. I am of the snowflake generation. I was born at the heyday of the self-esteem movement, which means everyone was telling us, you are so great, you can do whatever you want, pursue your passions, and so we're all about changing the world, but man, you better tell me I'm pretty good at this or I'm out. You better give me feedback or I'm not gonna make it, okay? Now, I remember the first week I, I visited Vine Street, I met Donnie Abersole, um, who went to be with the Lord in February, and we miss him so much. The first time I met Donnie, he told me that he had been handing out Connect cards and, uh, and bulletins for 34 years. That's humbling. Someone asked me to serve for six months, and I'm like, I don't know if I can commit to that long. I have to look at my, like, you know, my schedule, my capacity. And here's Donnie serving for 34 years, not because people are telling him he's doing a great job, he's just doing it because it's what needs to be done. That's a that's a, that's a powerful witness to us of what Jesus is talking about, that we are unworthy slaves. We don't put God in our debt when we obey him. We're just doing what we're supposed to do because we're his slaves. And if we're unworthy slaves, this really does kind of bring some questions about the spiritual bankruptcy of kind of evangelical celebrity culture. I've talked about this before. And the reason I talk about it is because even though none of us are celebrities, it infuses so much of how we think about the church. So I do think it's worth talking about. But I remember the first time I was at a church conference and I realized that there was a green room. This is a pastor's conference. 
Now, a green room is a is, is common thing in show business. Um, some movie goes, show business. What is that? Anyone know? What? Okay, anyways, I don't know. Anyways, um, it's a common thing in show business where like performers in between their performances have a place to go where they won't be mobbed by their adoring fans. And so in conferences, we have a place where the performers, the pastors who are preaching, can go and not interact with those that they're preaching to. Like there's, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of weird. Now, we may think, well, I, you know, the more theologically serious groups, we're not like that. But if you've been to T4G, there's a VIP section in the front where all the speakers sit. And guess what? It's corded off by a rope. And there are guards who will keep you from running and mobbing your favorite speaker. Now, there's like, like we don't, it, you know, to some extent you have to. There's a logistical issue. If you don't, you're going to have 15,000 men like mobbing poor John Piper. And he's got to have a place where he can, like, you know, have some room to breathe. But we have to ask ourselves, like, what have we done? that someone like John Piper has become basically the Justin Bieber of Reformed Evangelicalism, but it's not like middle school girls running after him, it's 35-year-old men. You've changed my life. Sign my Bible. I mean, it's ridiculous when we think about it, but we've done this. So that T4G has to like put a guard with a gun to keep us from mobbing these guys. They're just unworthy slaves. You know, the Bible is one hero. His name is Jesus. There's no supporting actors who get supporting actor awards. It's just one hero. And we just, we long to have other heroes. It's just part of the brokenness of our hearts. But there's one hero, one king, one Lord. And everyone else, it doesn't matter if you're John Piper or Matt Chandler, you pick your, like, speaker of choice. They're just unworthy slaves who at the end of the day will stand before Jesus and say, I just did what I was supposed to do and nothing else. And then we'll worship Jesus together and it'll be beautiful. But we're slaves of God. That is a basic posture of a disciple to God is we're, just, we're unworthy slaves. This brings us to our third point, that we're slaves by grace. You know, Jesus commands us to say, in verse 10, when all else is done, say, we are unworthy slaves. He commands us to say that because it's true. Um, it's interesting. Okay, so Paul in, in Romans 6.20 and 6.20 describes us before we became Christians. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. Before we came to Christ, we were slaves, but we were slaves to sin. Sin was our master, and sin was a brutal master. Paul continues in verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. If you're not a Christian, it's not like, oh, I can either be a slave of God or be free. No, it's like you're a slave either way, but you're a slave of sin. And it's a brutal, cruel master who will destroy you in the end. But verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and you have become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Salvation is, is, is not just forgiving us, but it's freeing us from slavery to sin, not so that we can become autonomous individuals, the captain of our fate, but so that we may now serve another master who's God himself. Now here's the point. Because we were former slaves, we brought nothing with us. Because we didn't own anything, we were slaves. 
When a slave is set free, they don't like call a U-Haul to pack up their belongings because everything that they used was their masters. They have nothing. They leave maybe with the clothes on their back. And when we came to God, we didn't have that. We were naked. We were in despair. We were lost. We came with nothing. And so everything that we have received because we came as slaves, everything that we've received is a gift. That's what grace is. Our relationships, the community we have, our jobs, God's provision. It's all a gift because we were just slaves. We had nothing when we came to God. Everything we receive is by grace. And here's the, we are slaves of God and if we left it at that, we would have a, 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 we would have a a wrong misconception of our relationship with God because it describes us as slaves of God but it never, ever describes God as a slave master. This is very interesting. Think about this. Paul, in various places, describes himself as a doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ. Here it's telling us, Jesus is saying, our attitude towards God must be one of, of, we are just unworthy slaves. Think of the story of the prodigal son, which we went over a couple weeks ago. The son comes home, he says, I know I've screwed up. I've screwed up. I don't deserve to be a son. Make me like one of your hired servants, slaves. I'm just a slave. And the father embraces him, not as a slave, but as a son. We come to God as slaves, but God does not receive us as slaves. He receives us as children, as sons and daughters. And we get the rights and responsibilities and privileges, not of a slave, but of a son or a daughter. Although we come as unworthy slaves, God receives us as his children. So again, everything is by grace. Everything we've received is, a, is by the grace of God. And this is where, it just is just where it goes bananas, guys. Is not only does God receive us as children, the Bible tells us one day God will receive us and serve us. Luke 12, 37, which we looked at, ooh, who knows how long that was, describes the day when we stand before Christ, the judgment day. And it describes it like this. It says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. By the way, it's blessed are those slaves. It's the same word. Truly I say to you, he, the master, God, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And then he will come and serve them. Do you see what's happening here? So in, 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 in Luke 17, it describes the, the typical relationship of a slave and a master. The slave works in the field. When they're done with their labor, they come in and they serve the master. And finally, when the master is eaten, then the slave can eat. But God says, Jesus says, no, no, after, after your labor in the fields, after you know, the life of hardship and difficulty and tears, when you finally come home, God's gonna serve us. Jesus, we are slaves of God, but God never receives us as slaves, and he will not treat us like a slave master would as highlighted in Luke 17, but he'll receive us, and we'll recline at table, and he will serve us. I'll be honest, I don't even know what that means, but it blows every category I have of what authority and power ought and should be. We are slaves of God, 
That is the basic fundamental posture of a Christian to God. We don't put him in our service. We don't put him in our debt when we obey him. We're just doing what we're supposed to do. But Vine Street, when we consider from where we came that we were slaves to sin, naked, without hope, lost, facing judgment, we consider from where we came from, when we consider that we brought nothing, we consider what we have received, not just as, as slaves with a place to live, but as children. We consider all of that. How else could we possibly respond to this Lord other than we are unworthy slaves? We don't deserve any of this. At best, we've only done what we were supposed to do. How else could we respond when we consider all of that? Let's pray. God, may you so form our hearts that though we lay our lives down on an altar before you, though we offer up everything we have for you, we will still say at the end of the day, we're just unworthy slaves. We've only done what we ought to do because you have so captured our hearts. You've delivered us from a debt we could not pay. You've given us a life we could not have imagined. You've brought us a hope that is unshakable. And we are nothing. And you are everything. Help us to say that with all our hearts. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.